Please note that due to COVID-19 lockdown restrictions, this podcast was recorded remotely. Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Hello and welcome to episode six of the Coward Podcast. My name is Lieutenant Colonel Langley Sharp, and it is my pleasure to introduce today's guest, Mr. Richard Heitner. Richard has spent his career working with the world's largest businesses and organizations, driving courageous and candid conversations on management, innovation, and marketing. He spent a decade working for the renowned consultancy firm Saatchi & Saatchi, first as CEO of Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and later as worldwide deputy chairman. On leaving Saatchi & Saatchi, Richard founded his own creative consultancy firm, Beta Baboon, who work with organizations to help solve complex problems and develop winning ideas using a unique guiding philosophy, rip it apart, play with it, solve it. Richard is an adjunct professor at the London Business School, teaching on the degree and executive education programs. In 2014, he published his book, Conciliary, Leading from the Shadows, which is a celebration and re-evaluation of the individuals who occupy the position of second in command. Beyond his focus with Beta Baboon, Richard has worked with a range of charities. He is the president of the Manchester United Supporters Trust, has been a trustee of Planting Promise, a sustainable education enterprise in Sierra Leone, and is a non-executive director of the Foundation for Leadership Through Sport. Richard, it's very good to see you again this morning. Thank you so much for joining us as a guest of the Centre for Army Leadership. Uh, for our listeners, Richard joined us in November of last year for a joint conference we held on leading through crisis. It was held jointly alongside the Foundation for Leadership Through Sport, which, as I said in the introduction, um, Richard is a non-executive director of that organisation. And that conference is available on our YouTube channel if you just search Centre for Army Leadership. A fantastic lineup we had of speakers from across multiple sectors, so do take a look. But Richard, a warm welcome. Really good to see you. Um, I wonder if you could start off uh, in terms of your own personal leadership and uh, your leadership style. But take it right back to the beginning. You've clearly had a fascinating and highly successful career. How did your early life and your education shape you as a leader? And who were your key influences at, at that time? I was I was very lucky. I grew up in the north of England in Manchester. I, uh, you know, classic kind of middle class, uh, privileged background. I went to a great school, Manchester Grammar. And I guess, you know, a huge part of my influence was really peer group at school and the kind of the whole school system. Um, on the face of it, um, you know, everybody, everybody even then was uh, potentially a leader. Uh, there are all sorts of kind of archaic systems that now make me kind of really embarrassed. So there was a whole prefect system. And I remember being a, a gold badge prefect and being, uh, I've discovered later, a really, really poor one. So I used to think that being a gold badge prefect was about working for the LAPD. And I once borrowed my mum's interior, interior decorating van and put prefects in the back of it and went to nab the smokers by the fish and chip shop. And much later in life, uh, you know, one of my culprits uh, reminded me of this. I mean, that's just terrible. So I, I feel uh, you get a kind of really artificial view at school, at least at my school, of what leadership was all about. It was all about being in command, being in charge. And I kind of bought that and fell for that. And I'm rather embarrassed that I did. 
Um, beyond that, uh, what influenced me, um, actually, uh, I think it was just really top quality people that I, I went to school with and, and seeing some of the best of them emerge to be naturally very, very good leaders. And from a school then you went to Cambridge University and studied law. Uh, what made you not stick to law and move into the advertising industry? Complete chance. Uh, in those days, employment kind of wasn't really a big deal. You were expected to get a job when you left university. There were jobs available when you left university. Um, I grew up in the law, so I was surrounded by lawyers when I was younger, and I wanted to do something different. And I just happened to meet some people from the advertising world. They, they looked uh, quite cool at the time. Done quite a lot of writing at university. I performed with the Footlights, for example. So I was, you know, the comedy frog when Hugh Laurie and Emma Thompson and Stephen Fry were hogging all the big parts. And um, I, I thought there was a kind of creative thing that I wanted to get out. So advertising felt to me to be a really good place to learn first how to be a decent business person. So I went in as a graduate trainee on a business scheme, thinking I would always just uh, as soon as possible transfer to the creative uh, part of that business. But after a year, I realized the creative people were like, they had something special and different that made their brains work in a particular way. And I, and I realized I was quite good at working with them and supporting them. And so I stuck on the business side. And, and in the end, that's, that's where I spent most of my time in, in the advertising world. I want to come back to your talk about creativity. It's a really, really important concept and it's getting talked, talked about more and more, certainly in the leadership world, as we look to sort of future leadership um, skill sets, if you like. Um, but I'd like to uh, focus on your book, first of all, Consigliere, which you wrote a few years ago, because I think it's a fascinating concept you're putting forward here about the strength of the leader in the, in the second in command, the number two position. So in that book, Consigliere, you talk about the concept leading from a position of support and how leaders have two types of leadership muscle, the A and the C. What if you could give us a quick overview of that concept, please? Yeah, the, con the concept really came from a realisation way too late in life, but a realisation nonetheless that leadership is a collective endeavour and that I'd observed and in fact had been uh, different kinds of leaders in different roles. And I felt that there was a real confusion because if you're called the chief executive, you're expected to behave in a certain way. You're expected, whatever the nature of the discussion, whatever the meeting, you're the ultimately accountable leader. And you kind of typically behave that way because people expect you to behave that way. And yet I felt there were so many people I'd observed and, and roles I'd played where I was more effective and they are supremely effective um, in a more supporting uh, leadership role. So I felt ones and twos didn't do it for me because automatically a number two comes with a kind of, I don't know, there's something about it in the hierarchy that says it's subordinate. So I wanted to create a model that at least said, you're all equal, ultimately somebody has to make the big decisions and that is the A, the ultimately accountable, but the C, the kind of the consigliere modeled on the, the ultimate advisor in the, in the Godfather, but the consigliere can be a number of different supportive roles, whether you are an assistant, a deputy, an advisor, um, a, uh, a team uh, project leader, whatever it happens to be, um, you're a C in that moment, you're not an A. And I think all great leaders need both muscles. So what if, if I could bring in the concept of, of followership here and the follower, because I think what you're saying here, it almost sounds like the, the second in command is both a, the, the classic leader and follower, leading the rest of the organisation 
but clearly following the the boss their intent working within their, their, in their intent but also providing that um, that guidance that um, uh, that truth uh, to to help shape the leader and their thinking the, the boss in their thinking is that fair to say I, I'm I have a kind of ambiguous have a, a strange relationship with the idea of followership I think I think there's a lot of great academic work around there's even kind of wonderful YouTube material where you see the first follower as being the most important follower because without that first follower you know the leader in this case on the YouTube video uh, the, the person doing an extraordinary dance kind of becomes a bit weird if somebody doesn't follow them um, so I, I think I think it's really important as a concept my only beef with it is it can sometimes lead to blind followership so you know you earn your followers as a leader but equally followers must actively lend their followership to the leader. They must make conscious, active choices. So I think, um, well done, followership is, is, is a great idea. And yes, you're right. I think we all ultimately follow somebody, unless you are literally at the top of the pyramid, everybody looks up and they've got somebody that they're supporting and advising, hopefully, and coaching. So all of us are seized to a great extent. And then ultimately, uh, we get given work or roles, and in your case, very clear commands that say you are the A as well. You're the A and the C. Yeah, I think that's, um, you made a really good point. I mean, I think followership and, and the follower concept is, is misunderstood and misinterpreted in, in many ways. And most great leaders have got great followers uh, around them and vice versa. And they support each other. It's a symbiotic relationship without a doubt. And, and just talking about the command structure, and you refer back to the military, and there's real synergy between the concept you're talking about, the A and the C muscles, and the structure we have within the army, is one would argue is, as, as individuals go throughout their army career, um, before they are the head of the team, before they're the boss, the section commander, the platoon commander, the commanding officer, in order to get there, most have to transition through a, a secondary supporting role, whether it be the section 2IC, company 2IC, battalion, or regimental 2IC. No, second in command and therefore for our people to effectively lead they've got to transition between those two roles and i guess it's it'll be the same in the corporate world as well with many ceos having transitioned through the c-suite in a deputy role of some description or another on that how easy is it to make that transition and what are the challenges as one migrates from the, from the supporter to the leader well I, I think the corporate world is behind the military on this i think the corporate world looks to the military as uh, a great exemplar of an organization that at least is really clear about those transitions the deal is clear you don't get one of these commands unless you have done these jobs the weird thing about the corporate world is um there is still a kind of stigma attached to some of the roles that you describe and that people feel the only way to get to the ultimate boss's chair is to behave like that ultimate boss, whatever the role they're given. And I think the reason I wrote the book and, and I, was, I was so keen to research it was, I think more openness and candor about the specific roles you're playing and why you're playing them and what it's doing for your development over the long term as a leader is really important. I think there needs to be more mindful choices made by talent, but also employers, about why we're giving you this role, what it's doing for your leadership. And, and that, I think, would help with those transitions. Because otherwise, they're quite painful if you suddenly go from never having had real accountability into that ultimately accountable role. It can, it can be quite a dangerous and scary place to be. So talking practically now, so... This is to say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm aspiring one day to, to be the CEO. 
um, but I'm now in the deputy position, wherever that may be. What, what practical steps can they take to prepare themselves for that transition? For, for the, so I, th I think they, they need to be asking for projects where they're being tested as the ultimately accountable. So give me not the whole division, not the whole market, not the whole area of responsibility, but give me a project and test me as that boss on that project. So um, we used at such and such a RASCI system, I'm sure it's familiar to the military, where you know, there is only one R, the responsible driving a project to the ultimately accountable leader. Um, and then there are a whole bunch of people supporting you in that endeavor and advising you. I don't think we consciously in the corporate world give people explicit instructions to go and lead something as a test, as a learning and development opportunity. Some corporates do it very, very well, but most, they just throw you in or they pragmatically keep you in a position because you happen to be good at it and, and fail to develop you as a talent. And I guess there is the, the role of the leader as well to, to give those opportunities in a supportive way as well, to make sure that people are, are given the, the resources and the knowledge and understanding so that they can actually be tested, be challenged, but in a safe environment. Absolutely. And that's leader as coach. And again, I know you do that well, but again, in the corporate world, I've seen a patchy kind of record of leaders who take the time to truly think about their followers, their C's in my book, um, and what they need to be both better C's, but also if they wish to be at some point an A. And part of it is actually deciding, is this something I really want to be and why? What's the motivation for that? Is this going to be me playing in position, playing at strength? Or is this just me pursuing a career because that's the expectation that society's placed on me and us or my parents have or my friends expect me to be the ultimate boss? I mean, it's about making much more conscious choices about what kind of leader you want to be. And do you think the conversation is changing in the corporate world? Are, are people looking at the, the second in command position differently now and seeing that as a sort of a virtue in itself, if you like? I hope so. I think there's some you know, great examples of them. And I think it, it varies across the world as well. I think there's something about you know, Western societies that say you've got to be the top dog because if you're not the top dog, you're an also ran. That's not the case in some parts of the world where I went to talk about my book in Asia, for example, where there is much more nobility attached to being a servant leader and, and, and serving some you know, higher authority. Um, I do think it's changing, though, because I think we have, uh, you know, we continue to learn lessons about um, our, our kind of fixation on the singular charismatic leader. We kind of keep voting them in. Uh, we, keep, uh, we, we keep doing that. And yet, in the end, I think uh, more trust is being earned by those leaders who are not quite so ready to reach for the, the megaphone and who do surround themselves with diverse teams of people who keep them in check. Just on your, your point there about servant leadership and serving others, again, do you think that that is changing in the core world? I always have a, a, a perception that uh, certainly in, in, in Western society, as you say, it's very much about getting to the top and it's about individuals seeking their own path for their own ends um, and very individually focused. Is that changing and do you see a sense of service and looking out for others um, being increasingly prevalent in, in the corporate world? I do on a tide of far greater attention to corporate sustainability, to our impact on the communities around us, on people and planet, on well-being, 
I think shareholders now are holding businesses to a much higher standard on this. Investors are not investing in businesses that don't treat their people well, that don't use their resources responsibly. And I think on the back of that, I hope uh, a new, um, more balanced style of ultimate leadership uh, kicks in because I think so, some, of, some of the people who are doing really, really well are those who are paying much closer attention to those issues. And so we turn into the C leader and the, versus the A leader. What are the main attributes of the C versus the A? So, so main attributes of a C, I think, first of all, it helps to have been an A. I think it helps to have had the scar tissue. I certainly found that I was a better C for having experienced the loneliness of being an A, the horrors of having to take the big decisions, how they weighed heavily. Unless you can really understand what it's like to be an A, it's tough to be a great C at the highest level. But in addition to that, wherever you are in the organization, to be a great C, I believe that you have to have courage. You have to be able to speak up and speak out. Uh, you have to be content at having a seat at the table, but not necessarily being at the head of the table. So that kind of sense of being important and influential, but not needing the recognition, not needing the status. Um, and I think you need to be able to use the time and space you've probably been given as a C to come forward with really creative ideas real solutions to problems, scenarios that the A hasn't got time to think through. So I guess what you're saying, it goes back to that symbiotic relationship again, whereby if you have a contented, self-assured second in command, a C leader, they're in a much stronger position to support the A, to be courageous and speak truth to power without, without fear of, their, of upsetting their promotion prospects or their bonus. And they're willing to be creative and proactive thinkers. And in turn, benefit in both the A themselves, but also the wider organisation. That, that's so true. And I, that's why I think in the corporate world, again, I, I can't speak for military, but in the corporate world, casting is so important because an A needs to be able to trust their C and their motives. And I think a, an explicit conversation between them um, works either way. If the C says, look, at some point, I really do want your job, then the A can do something with that. They can prime them for that succession and or they can find them an equivalent A role somewhere else without it being a threat. The C that's dangerous is the C that kind of keeps their agenda of wanting to be the A to themselves. That's not helpful to either party. You need a trusting relationship between the two and, and the roles need to be cast really carefully for the context in which you're leading together. That might change, but for the next two to three years, here's the deal, here's the spiritual contract. I know what you want from me and vice versa, and we'll hold each other to account for that. And it's that kind of candor between the two that I think is really healthy. It's where it's unspoken and assumed that, that you get the dangerous seas. And it boils down to that word trust again, which is uh, the glue that binds in leadership. I want, I want to come back to your point you talked about, um, uh, you've been the A, uh, and therefore you're a stronger C. And that A was when you were um, as a uh, CEO in Europe, Middle East and Africa, Saatchi and Saatchi in your, in your mid-40s, remarkably young to be a CEO. Has it made you believe in the concept that if an individual is talented enough, then age is irrelevant and should organisations fast track their talent to leadership positions? Well, I, I definitely think uh, organisations should fast track. I think they should give people early responsibility. It was I, I was lucky. I worked for an amazing boss 
who believed in throwing people in to do things, to test them. He was willing to see you fail. He was prepared to take that risk on your behalf. So he promoted early and he always thought at Saatchi that you'd get better performance by giving people early responsibility. And I, I was definitely a beneficiary of that. I, I think that um, it depends again on context. Some businesses are more complex to run than others. In truth, the greatest complexity of being a leader at Saatchi was being a talent manager of taking this extraordinary creative talent and making sure you provided the, the platform and the environment in which they could do their best work. So I don't think it was a terribly complicated business to be a CEO of, other than from a, a talent dimension. I, I would have been really exposed if I had, think, if I if I had taken on a CEO role in a in a kind of more complex environment. And I do think there is a danger in young people wanting it really quickly without fully understanding what accountability really means. I think when you're accountable to it, for example, a publicly quoted company, age shouldn't be the issue, but your willingness to be accountable for everything uh, is a big deal. And I think people need to kind of go into that with their eyes wide open. You said you're a stronger C because your time is an A. So what were the key lessons you learned as CEO? Um, I, I think number, number one, I learned that um, you need wise people around you. So um, actually I became a CEO even before I was at Saatchi, in, in a much smaller environment, I was a CEO um, of Publicis. And, uh, and, and in fact, prior to that, some, some other company where I went in search of a wise chair because I knew I was too young to do this on my own. So I learned that pretty young, that, that um, you do really need wise heads around you, irrespective of, of, of your own kind of talent or experience. That's number one. Number two, that accountability, if you're to take it seriously, really, really does mean a huge amount. And you can't just grab the status and grab the offers and grab the title and the trappings without knowing what it involves. And I think number three, um, I was too cautious. And I don't know if that was an age thing or a personality thing, but maybe because I've been chasing being the boss for so long, I, when I got there, I didn't want to fail. And I think in, in retrospect, I could have been a much more courageous and effective A if I'd gone for it. But I, I allowed myself, I think, to be too tentative. So as I got older, I got bolder. And um, I, I, I wonder again, I don't know if that's a personality thing or, or an age thing. But if, if I were doing it all again, or if I were advising younger people who are about to take on big leadership roles, I would, I'd look for a context where I could, I could be the boldest I could be. So let's let's turn our attention to those younger leaders coming through the the Gen Ys, the Gen Zs that you've spoken about before, and you've said that they are more ambitious, curious, and wanting success quicker. Not necessarily recognising the corporate ladder that we've spoken about previously. So, what institutional challenges will we will we face because of this? Number one is acceptance. I think I think every organisation has to accept that is the cohort. No, no, none of them are identical, um, so it's terribly dangerous to generalise. But there is no question a generation has grown up with a less healthy legacy uh, than than certainly people like I got. Less certainty, less likelihood of jobs for life, um, less of a, of of the possibility that an organisation can commit to them for the long term. So I think they're right to be 
not selfish, but self. And so that's, you have to accept that as an organization. If you want the best talent, the deal has changed. The expectation has changed. And I support the fact that those expectations from that talent have been heightened. They're different. They're more demanding. Number one. Number two, then, I think the organizational challenge is one of agility. How can we keep these ambitious, restless people busy, satisfied, curious, intellectually stimulated, operationally stimulated, without constantly moving uh, the whole organization around? How can we, if, if you like, package up projects, opportunities, learning and development experiences that keep them really stretched um, with, without it becoming operationally impossible? That's a huge challenge. And in a corporate world, I'd probably look to some military operational genius to say, how do we do this? Because I think it's a, it's, it's a huge challenge. And then the third thing I think is, is, is being willing as an, as an organization to be much more, much more open to the idea that people will come in for three years and leave. And then maybe they'll come back at some time in the future, but not to look at a person as someone who should be here for a long time. I think that frame has got to change. So you've spoken uh, before and, and, and you mentioned it there again today about um, stretching people, challenging people um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a tool for developing them. Uh, we've got a similar concept in the, the Army Mission Command where we give clear intent to our subordinates, as we call them, um, but we empower them to, to deliver the task how they see best fit. So we give them the parameters to do so. We give them the resources and the boundaries we, we tell them what to do and why to do it, but not how to do it. We empower our people to get on and bring their talent and experience to, to bear on the task. Um, and I think that, that, that in many ways relates back to what you're saying about empowering young leaders and giving them the opportunity to rise to the challenge within a safe environment so they do fail. You that, as the boss are there to, to, to look after them and accept that risk. I think what we have found, whilst this is a very credible philosophy and it absolutely works, some leaders do have the tendency to rein back that control and responsibility when the task is of particular importance or there is heightened risk uh, involved. And, and the task and the bottom line in, in the corporate world is important to any organisation. So how does any leader balance empowering their team while still achieving required output? It's such a great, it's such a great thought, and I've seen parallels with my work at the Metropolitan Police, where I've I've supported the um, the management board, and empowerment's the big deal there as well. In, in in a in an environment and culture that rightly respects operational hierarchy and needs it, um, and and I think it takes two qualities from the ultimate boss. One is genuine courage to know that in supporting that talent, you are still accountable. So if it does go wrong, it is your responsibility. And because of that, I think it takes a particular intense coaching relationship between the boss and that talent. If you are not going to just jump in at the first sign of hazard or danger uh, or failure, then I think, I think it requires a kind of different quality of coaching. And, and an intensity in that, in that kind of relationship. And, and the tendency to, to jump in, to micromanage, to, to solve the problem um, is, is huge. I've been there myself. I know what it's like when something important is about to go wrong 
uh, the person you've delegated to is about to make a horrendous mistake. And you know, my, my knee-jerk reaction was always to, to jump in and to be the hero and the saviour. And I think it just takes real guts to stick with it and, and allow, obviously, depending on the kind of, you know, the, the, the context, but allow that situation to play out. Courage and coaching, I think, are the answers. Not easy. I'd like to come back to creativity, which is uh, something that's clearly close to your heart. On Leaving Saatchi and Saatchi, you set up Beta Baboon, who look to use creativity to solve complex problems. So why is creativity so important to an organisation or a team? And why should institutions and leaders within those institutions embrace creativity? I think creativity has become the number one quality, certainly in the corporate world, that leaders look to from people they recruit and retain. If you look at data from the World Economic Forum in 2015, creativity was the number 10 skill that CEOs felt their potential recruits needed to thrive in a working world. That's gone up to number three. And number two and one are things like problem solving and uh, complex lateral thinking. They're, they're, they're conflated. It's the number one skill that people need. So why is that? Because problems have become more intractable, because problems need solving by more disparate people through collaboration. And um, ultimately, uh, it's, it's, it's because every organization faces problems that need lateral, fresh thinking. Um, that said, it's really, really easy to say that's what you need and really difficult to create the climate in which it happens. So there's a massive gap between CEOs saying we want it and CEOs then fostering an environment in which it's even possible to be creative. Most organisations routinely, not malignly, but routinely kill people's ability to think differently. So the leader's challenge is to check themselves on that and to make sure that their routines, their processes, their behaviours are not discouraging creativity, quite the opposite, and making it highly likely and, 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 and easier to do. In a previous podcast, our professional head of the army, CGS, talked about the requirement of our young leaders to be professionally curious. Is there a link between being curious and being creative? Massive. Indivisible. In, in, in um, if you are curious, the application of your curiosity is creativity. If you are creative, the application of that is that you will innovate. You will, you will actually bring things to bear in process or into the market that are creative. So I think at the root of creativity is this willingness to open your eyes, really look at the world, look at the problem afresh in ways, and just to keep asking why. That ultimately leads to creativity, both big and small. And you've also talked about diversity earlier on in the conversation. So how is diversity linked to creativity and what are the benefits of having a diverse team to enable that? Why is diversity so important? Because academic work suggests that the, the more diverse a team, the more likely it is that the outcome will be a new, fresh, different one. Because you're baking in different opinions. You are, in effect, ensuring that there, there is conflict, healthy conflict in a team discussion out of which you will all push yourself to a better answer, to reconcile the, the and-and, to make sure that you're not simply indulging in whopping groupthink. In, in the advertising world, it was amazing how often 
we were tempted to fall in love with the first idea that popped out of the creative department's head. It, it was rarely the best idea. One has to go for difference and distinction. And that only comes from casting people of very different backgrounds, very different perspectives, very different skill sets. A tied concept which we talk about quite a bit in the, in the military, in the army, is uh, a challenge culture to enable creativity, to enable people to bring their views forward and be heard and to feel that they've got a voice. How does a leader set the climate to encourage a challenge culture? You, you will know that lots of studies have been done on this. Google have done a huge study. The conclusion being that the most effective teams are the teams that feel psychologically the safest. That, that makes instinctive sense to me. I've never, ever personally risen to a kind of challenge that is fearful, that induces one's anxiety. People typically create when, yes, the circumstances may be challenging, the problem may be challenging, but the environment in which you aim to solve the problem is really safe, supportive, reassuring. Um, and, and I think that's the leader's duty to create that kind of environment. Challenge also has to be embraced by the people involved. I, th I think if you want a, a cosy ride, then certainly operating the creative culture like Saatchi and Saatchi was, was not for you. I think one has to uh, accept that if you want to be part of a really high-performing culture that solves problems you know, consistently, then you should feel an element of discomfort because you, you, you have to be willing to have yourself pushed and to push yourself to a higher standard. Just now, Richard, you spoke about one of the principal skills of a leader, that being problem solving, and I think we all recognise that. Within an increasingly complex world and increasingly complex problems we have to deal with, are our leaders adept at problem definition? Well, that, that, then, I, then I am going to come back to the baboons, because you asked me about why, why baboons for a creative problem solving business, and it's because when... When I went to uh, talk to people who look after these great creatures, um, they taught me that baboons, when they solve problems, they first of all rip apart that problem, then they play with it, and only when they've done those do they solve it. And certainly in the corporate world, the more senior you get, the more tempted you are to look at a problem and go, oh, I've seen that problem before because I've got the experience. So I know what the solution to that is. It's familiar. And, and so to your question, the role of a leader is to say, we're going to reframe, redefine, rip apart that problem to describe it now in a way that in and of itself is likely to lead us to be more playful, more inventive before we solve it. So I, I think in a creative process, more time spent up front reframing that problem is always time well spent. And then, of course, consistently reframing it as the, the problem evolves and the complexity of the problem evolves. In language that's vivid, in language that's clear, in ways that excite the team of problem solvers. It's, it's quite difficult to find an, a creative and novel outcome to a problem if the problem itself and the problem statement is dull as ditch water. So I, I think it's, it, it helps to be, uh, it helps to energise the process if the problem definition itself is, it feels stretchy and exciting. Thanks, Richard. I want to change track now to crisis leadership, which when you joined us for the conference back in November, you very kindly spoke about with great credibility. Many leaders now across multiple sectors will be listening to this podcast, currently faced with some unprecedented challenges. 
what advice would you give to those leaders trying to navigate through this particularly acute period of uncertainty, ambiguity, and of course, risk? I think if I were in their shoes, I would, I'd spend an hour putting down on a piece of paper the organisations that I admire for the way they've come through the crisis or the way they've responded to the crisis. So I keep coming back to the fact that possibly indeed with your help, uh, the NHS got Nightingale hospitals built in nine days. I just find that gobsmacking. I find some of the responses by some of the leaders to this pandemic to have been absolutely world-class. And the question I would be asking them is, and what stops you responding in that way organisationally when business has been less uncertain? How can you create the kind of behaviours in your organisation that mimic and ape the best of what you've seen in this crisis? So I, I think looking to others to role model looking to uh, shape behaviours, looking to the kind of boldness with which people have gone about taking decisions that you just know they would have spent months debating uh, pre-pandemic. And, and to just hold a mirror up to the organisations and, and say, well, let's do it. Why can't, we, why can't we take the best of this and make that business as usual going forward? From your experience working across many sectors, Richard, what are those characteristics that define success in a crisis? Um, I, th I think adherence to values. Uh, I, know, I know you feel that in, in, in the military. I think that kind of use of your vision, your values, your, your purpose as your greatest ally through the crisis, I think that's probably the common denominator between those businesses that went left versus right, that, that decided that they were actually going to subdue the profit motive to do the right thing for their people, for their customers, to suddenly elevate people's mental well-being to the very top of the agenda. I think that's about true, authentic adherence to values. And I think what crisis exposes uh, are those companies that spout vision and values, but really in their hearts don't truly believe it. Absolutely, Richard. Thank you very much. Before we uh, draw to a close, I'd like to throw a few quick-fire questions your way, if I may. First of all, who's your the best leader you've ever known or worked with, and why? I'm going to go for my former boss at Saatchi and Saatchi, Kevin Roberts. An acquired taste. No question, I learned more working for Kevin than I've learned working for anybody else. He stretched me to a kind of performance level I didn't think possible. Um, so he held me to a very high standard. He coached me. When he was with you, you had his undivided attention. Um, he was fearless. I saw him face some extraordinary challenges and never once did I detect a jot of anxiety. In fact, he once told me, when I asked him what kept him awake at night, he said, absolutely nothing. Uh, go home and have your wife, you know, pat your head and say, don't worry. So he was utterly fearless. Now, what made him inspirational also at times made him infuriating. And I, I more often than not would come home squeaking at the injustice of, of what he'd asked me to do. But no question, I, I, would, I would say my best work was done for him. And in fact, what I'm doing now, I wouldn't be doing, I wouldn't have the confidence to do unless I'd work for him. So, so Kevin Roberts. Who's your most inspirational leader from history and why? I, I, I love that question. And of course, I've got through my research all sorts of people who would be the great leaders behind the shadows, the Eleanor Roosevelt's to, to FDR, etc. But I'm going to go forward 100 years and look back and say in history, who will we look back on and go, 
great leaders. And I've got two I just want to mention. One is David Attenborough, because David Attenborough gave up, refused to take the job of DG at the BBC because he wants to make wildlife programs. And when I look at the impact that that man has had now on the sustainability debate and on the movement uh, to redress climate change, I think he will end up having been a great leader. And I'm just, because it's so topical, going to pull out uh, Professor Chris Whitty and his ability amongst all this pandemic noise to just speak the truth, to tell it as it is, whether that's good or bad, to explain really tough stuff in very simple ways and to stay true to himself. I think he's been exemplary, the, uh, the chief medical officer of the uh, NHS. Two hugely credible leaders. Great answer. Uh, most valuable leadership lesson you've learned? Don't allow your most courageous thoughts to stay in your head. I think you answered the next question already, but most enjoyable leadership position you've ever had? Definitely a C, and it would be as deputy to Kevin Roberts at Saatchi and Saatchi and uh, running my own show now of one. So I'm both A and C. Uh, with hindsight, what would you tell a young Richard Heitner, fresh out of law school, about leadership? It's not about being the number one. It's forget the fact that you're the number two boy in the family and you were called Heitner two at school. There might be a clue in that very name uh, that leadership uh, is something that operates right across the spectrum and you can have a lot of fun and a lot of impact leading from very different positions. What is society's biggest leadership challenge in the future? No question, it's about trust trust in leaders. Can we believe that what they're saying is true? So much damage has been done to undermine our confidence in people at the top in high positions of authority actually telling us the truth. So I think any leader is going to wrestle with that need to earn and keep earning the trust of those that they wish them wish to follow. From gold badge prefect to world-class conciliary, Richie Heitner, thank you very much indeed. I really enjoyed that conversation with Richard today, and I particularly love his concept of the conciliary, raising the profile of the number two, the second in command, and his idea of creating a model whereby leadership is a collective endeavour with different people in different leadership roles. Some have to make the decisions and be held to account for those decisions, the A, but arguably just as important are those in the supporting role, the conciliary, the sea leader. And from personal experience, real leadership success comes when that relationship between the boss and the deputy is working in unison. It is, as we said in the conversation there, it is a symbiotic relationship. And it's one that's got to be based on honesty and openness and candor, rooted in mutual trust and understanding. I was encouraged that through the work of people like Richard, we're changing the narrative on the deputy role, getting away from this all too common perception that people ought to climb this corporate ladder to one day be the boss, to be the CEO. Instead, recognize that there are different leadership roles with equal credibility and validity, both to the individual and to the organization, and that different leaders will excel in different roles. I was really encouraged by Richard's talk of empowerment, empowering junior leaders, entrusting them to take on responsibility in order to challenge them and in so doing deliberately develop them and this is very much a leader's responsibility and it's something we hold dear in the British Army 
where we are consistently training our leaders of all ranks to be able to step up, to be able to take that next position of command. Because on the battlefield, there may come the point where the commander is taken out of action and the individual has to step up. So it's a leader's responsibility to make sure we develop our people so they're ready to make that transition at a moment's notice. And it's of no surprise, of course, that Richard spoke very eloquently about creativity. In his view, the number one attribute for recruiting and retaining our talent. It's creativity, he argues, that's necessary to navigate through these increasingly intractable problems and the need for lateral fresh thinking. Moreover, it's the leaders themselves that need to create the environment to allow people to think differently, to think creatively, which is, I believe, a particular challenge for the army as we go forward. And the final two takeaways for me, firstly, the criticality of sustaining purpose and values in crisis. I think we all recognize that. And finally, of course, Richard's parting advice, act like a baboon, rip it apart, play with it, solve it. If you like what you've heard today, please do subscribe to our podcast, visit our website, Centre for Army Leadership, and follow us on our social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.